0: Welcome to what you didn't expect in fertility, pregnancy, and birth. How we think and feel about this enormous transition often lives in the gap between what we expected and what we actually experienced. This gap exists in part because of how we tend to talk about and portray these events on all kinds of media in a one-dimensional way. Everything was amazing, but it's more often the case that there are beautiful things that happen and at the same time, really challenging things that happened. This show shares true experiences both the easy parts and the difficult parts, and how we manage what we didn't expect. The intense things that can happen in the course of this transition can impact how you see yourself, how you see your partner, and how you parent. The better we understand what happened to us, the better we can manage all the things that follow. I'm your host, Paulette Kamenica. I'm a writer and an economist and the mother of two girls, and I met many, many challenges in this process, none of which I expected. In today's episode, I finished my conversation with Melissa we talk about how she manages the births of her two sons on the heels of a challenging reproductive journey. I also include the insights of a great therapist who specializes in reproductive trauma. She talks about how attachment might be affected by trauma and how one might identify if they had a traumatic experience. And importantly, she shares that many of these challenges can be healed. We pick up this week's conversation where we left off. Melissa is in the midst of a C-section for what turned out to be the
1: birth of her first son. And so when I was getting contractions, his heartbeat kept dropping and the doctor was sitting next to me um, looking at the monitor and he was a bit concerned. Uh, At that time, I was having contractions, so I was on the gas and I was in a lot of pain. And... He immediately called for an emergency in C-section. While I'm having contractions, he asked me to fill a sign. I remember I had to fill a sign while I was having contractions, while I was taking the gas, pain, And I somehow signed this form. The doctor was talking to my husband, explaining the situation. And basically, I was having a C-section within the next 30 minutes or so. And yeah, you know, my baby was born. luckily, thank God. It was pretty healthy.
0: That's amazing. And and you know, there's always something you gotta keep your eye on it, right? Because there's always something yeah. going on. So that sounds pretty fast. Did does that mean that they put you under for the C section or did they just give you an epidural or? Yeah, it was an epidural, so I was awake for the whole thing. Okay. Good. Yeah. okay, good. And your husband got to be in the room? Yeah. Yeah. Um he and has was the that cord, a... yeah. Uh, Oh, that's lovely. And was that a joyous thing when they lift the baby over the
1: curtain? Yeah, it was amazing. Like, amazing thing. Yeah. I was actually looking back at photos the other day. just thought, like, this was a blessing for me. It was just such a blessing. Yeah. I was so emotional. I remember I was so emotional when we went back to the room because my husband was staying uh, with my son. During the whole process until I came out of recovery, basically. So he sort of wandered with my son uh, until then. And when I got to see him properly for the first time, you know, it's really, really emotional. And it's just a nice.
0: I bet that was a beautiful reunion. And then I can imagine that someone who has encountered as many challenges as you and your husband did on the way to this baby. Mm-hmm. Is the fourth trimester super easy because you're like, I don't care. I have a baby. Or are there challenges in the fourth trimester also?
1: Emotionally, there was challenges because I was just worried that something's going to happen. But that was right from the beginning. I, I, I always say that I never really enjoyed the pregnancy because
0: of that feeling. It makes total sense that Melissa might leave this birth with a feeling of anxiety, given all that came before. And she's not alone in having this feeling with a newborn. I took this issue to a a fantastic therapist who focuses on reproductive trauma, Beth Warren, who commented on managing loss in last week's episode. Melissa said that when her son was born, she was anxious about Mm -hmm. him at all moments. And good Lord, how could you not be? Is there a way to unlink the influence of the traumatic things that happened from your present day experience?
2: Yeah. You know, this is some of my favorite work to do. And I always want everyone to know that to your point, how could it not be? Yeah. Attachment and bonding can very much be impacted by losses, by reproductive trauma. And how could it not be? What you went through is going to still linger and show up in your parenting. It's almost like the lens of what you're seeing everything else through is, of course, going to show up in your parenting. So if you already feel in your body like there's something dangerous happening or that you need to be on edge, how could that not show up in the way that you're connecting with your baby? Then you are going to be much more hyper attuned, and feel like, oh, what did that cry mean? That must mean something bad or I have to prevent them from crying or, you know, when did I last feed? And maybe doing those wet and dirty diaper logs and the feeding logs so religiously and feeling like you're beholden to those logs or whatever. Or vice versa, for some people who've experienced loss and reproductive trauma, they are not consciously, but um, kind of protecting their heart. And they might feel this bit of disconnect, or they might even feel a bit of resentment. Um, again, not consciously. And the important thing to know, and I love that you asked that, is this idea of, all of this is continually changing. I always like to tell people bonding is a verb, meaning that it's an ongoing action, not like bonding is this one-time event that happens when you have a baby. It actually continues to happen all through pregnancy and throughout being a parent. It's not a a one-time event that, oh, you've lost that window, it's done. It's a continual connection and connecting and caregiving of the baby. In fact, for those who feel disconnected, I always like to encourage my clients, look at what you already are doing. Look how you are showing up. You might not feel the ooey gooey inside. Those warm feelings of connection will come with time, but you're showing up by just the doing is so helpful. And so someone who is feeling that sense of the hypervigilance the anxiety through our pregnancy, we would already start working on that then or in the postpartum period. It's never too late.
1: So, I mean, I was happy when I got to the, the end of that pregnancy and then it worked. So yeah. <laughs> I had my son that was cement. So that's yeah. exciting. And does his brother follow close behind? So we tried again about two years. Later, because we wanted to have a, a sibling for my son, and I fell pregnant, and not too long after, I miscarried that pregnancy. So that was around eight or nine weeks. and So, even though you're giving yourself injections
0: this time, or you didn't do the injections, I didn't.
1: I didn't do the injections when I went to see my obstetrician around the five or six week mark, and it, there was a heartbeat at that time. He said, "Come back in a week." And we'll see what happens. And I had a feeling that he had reservations about the pregnancy, but I went back the, the next week, which would have been about seven, or could have been eight weeks, can't remember exactly. But there was no heartbeat with that one, so I had a feeling that he knew something. Which is why he didn't offer it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so,
0: for the next successful one, are you using the blood thinners again? Yeah, so
1: we tried tried pretty much, I think maybe about three or four months afterwards. And I felt pregnant fairly quickly as well. And the doctor said to me, we will do the same treatments. But this time, to try and hold the baby, we will, at the six-week mark, we will start doing progesterone. So from, I think, six weeks four weeks i think i was inserting um, progesterone as well as injecting myself same this doesn't sound super comfortable no <laughs> it wasn't but i was doing it i was doing it because yeah yeah whatever i had
0: whatever works right at this
1: point that's or, right yeah that's right and what was that pregnancy like so that pregnancy was really healthy as well i was really blessed i was thankful to my doctor because he offered that and I mean it was a very normal pregnancy again up until the end. And uh, then what happened at the end? So around the same time, like thirty-eight weeks and four days, I remember it was exactly the same time as my first time was born. My doctor did a scan and he sort of found that there was not many pockets of fluid. So that meant that the fluid was coming out somehow. And so the baby wasn't able to move around as much. So he asked me to go and get another scan done, which is a bit high level, and that came back the same. So that doctor that did the scan said there wasn't many bits of fluid. So does that mean there's
0: not enough amniotic fluid? Is that what that means?
1: That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So I wasn't, yeah, I didn't have the fluid and there was a high risk that the baby could be stillborn as well, or there could be problems having a natural birth. So the doctor said, you've got three options. You can wait, see what happens over the weekend. You could have a test done, which will sort of give me an idea of what, I can't remember exactly what it was called, but it was a test to help, See the actual the fluid in a blood test something and or have a cesarean so my gut was just saying have the cesarean then i remember uh, because my husband wasn't with me at the doctor's that that time I, i rang him and he said yeah just do the cesarean so i was having another cesarean and it was pretty much the day after Good. That's what my money was on.
0: Let's get this baby out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and was that similar to the first
1: one? No, because I knew I was going to have a cesarean. Okay. So I was planning, you know, it was planned, basically. And I was prepared, prepared to have that cesarean. Okay, good.
0: So they take out the excitement element of that. That's right. But then it's quick like the last one and your husband cuts the cord and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like a, a normal, a mass space. Yeah. Well, that sounds lovely. And then, how is that
1: at home with the two littles? Yeah, I was busy. I think because I was breastfeeding, I was breastfeeding here. I think I got to about nine months and then I gave up. But I was really stressed with him because I had mastitis a lot when I was breastfeeding, and it just. It just got to a point where I just didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah. And I remember doing uh, breastfeeding for months with my first son. And then, yeah, him I did for nine months. I got through it, but it was really stressful. When you're in pain, you don't feel happy. So I wasn't happy while I was breastfeeding. But then after I stopped, man, it just made it so much easier to enjoy my baby. Wow. That's a great
0: way to end this part of your story. You and your husband persevered through so many challenges and you were able to create the family you were hoping for. And I'm always really moved by stories like yours in part because you used what you learned from your own experience to help other mothers who've experienced miscarriage. You wrote a book and put together a few anthologies that focus on
1: loss and grief. Isn't that right? So, yeah, so I decided to write my own book, first of all. I I did a blog. It was my therapy throughout the whole pregnancy, really. And then after the blog, I wrote my memoir. And then I decided a few months later, you know, while I had two little ones, to compile a book of pregnancies which I called Comfort the Tears Lights of the Way. And they were just a book of pregnancy. So it included um, miscarriage, stillbirth, um, premature babies, you know, um, families that went through IBS. And then I did a second one, the same or similar. I had a few different stories. So I had a lot of the same stories in there, but I just wanted to update it. So I added new stories. And I called that one "Pumped for the Tears." And then in 2019, maybe I decided that I wanted to start a series because we got to COVID. This, in the I felt that there was a need for happiness, positivity. And I wanted to do something really different. And I was talking to a friend and he mentioned that he wanted to write a letter to his mum. And it sort of gave me an idea of, well, maybe I could do something similar. I I had already published um, three books. And I decided to put together a book of letters and that became Letters of Love. And in in that one, I wrote a letter to my two boys, and so I yeah I I put that book together, and then another two books came after that, so it was wow. a, a series. So this one, this is the the one that is a collection of intimate and heartwarming letters in memory of our loved babies. Gorgeous. So it's written in memory of our babies and written for Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness. And that was just released a couple of weeks ago. Wow, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And so that's a a book called Pregnancy and Infant Loss, basically. So letters from 10 different authors writing a letter to their baby about their babies. Yeah, they've written Beautiful' beautiful stories, so I'm really proud of that one, and the, the money that we raise for that book is going back to purchase more of those books so we can donate to hospitals, libraries, you know, putting care packs and things like that. So that that's a great idea. idea. That's a great mm-hmm. idea. So
0: are there plans for the next in the series?
1: No, that's the last one. Okay, yeah, I didn't want it to more so three books is enough. Yeah, <laughs> that's a lot. That's a lot. And yeah. so,
0: where can people find it if they're looking for your work?
1: So, that book is on Amazon under my name. So, it's just called Letters of Love. So there's three that come up, but you probably have to type in my name as well because there's so many books out there called uh, Letters of Love. Or they can get it from my website. So, it's www.melissa.gov slash Letters of love. Okay,
0: I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Thank you. It seems like an incredibly useful project, both for the people writing the stories and for the people reading the stories, right? It's a kind of a comfort I'm imagining that
1: you did not have on your journey. No, I did not have that much. Um, I think that the, the other thing that, that I probably should mention is that in 2019, I became a support companion for... A organization called the Pink Elephant Support Network, so I and all the other companions that are involved to help or support women that have been through pregnancy or early pregnancy loss, so miscarriage and we basically chat to them online or over the phone and just let them talk about the losses and just support that however they feel they need to be supported, which is something that they that didn't happen for a long time. I know for me, there was nothing like that available.
0: I think for many women who have had really challenging experiences around all aspects of reproduction, the idea that you might call it trauma didn't exist outside the office of a therapist and maybe it didn't even exist in the office in the early 2000s. How would someone identify that they have experienced a reproductive trauma?
2: Yeah, your name in it, it is, I think, more of a recent term to label things as trauma and it's more collective understanding recently of what is trauma. It certainly, when I was working in the hospital 25 years ago, that I think what was more known as birth trauma was truly the more classic medical Idea of trauma, yeah. like if there had been a pelvic floor injury, for example, but not what we know to be the case with trauma, which is to now, which is the idea of it's a, a response of the nervous system to something distressing that has happened. And that can include things that look more, quote unquote, invisible. To others and providers, when someone has been distressed and felt terrified, or if they felt overpowered or coerced into something, if they felt silenced. So maybe on paper, all these things look like they, someone had a very standardized vaginal birth or, you know, even let's use loss as an example. Someone might appear like they were open and cooperative and, and going through all the procedures and the process okay? And yes, they were tearful, but they were fully coherent throughout. Would that have been labeled as trauma back in the day? Trauma is very subjective and it's truly in the eye of the beholder. So a lot of people may not identify that what they went through is traumatic. I like to say it to people if you feel off, then you feel off. We don't have to use these popular labels, and and trauma is different even than um, post traumatic stress disorder from the diagnosis of PTSD. In other words, you don't have to meet full criteria of PTSD in order to have felt like something was traumatic or distressing to you. But if you're feeling off, if you're feeling activated, more maybe irritable or rageful than normal. If you are having that kind of hypervigilance where you feel like you have to be frequently checking like there's doom and gloom, you can't really put your finger on it, but you don't feel safe or maybe you're checking your environment. If you do have a living baby, if you're feeling like you have to keep checking baby and breathing like something's wrong, something's wrong. Or if you feel like you're avoiding certain situations or maybe even the hospital or replaying things in your mind and thinking about it is really distressing. All of those are signs of trauma, but we don't have to label them as such. If the word trauma hasn't been something that you've identified with, but all you know is replaying it in your mind is really challenging, and/or it's hard to talk about, that can be a sign for some folks. Some people can't talk about their experience at all. Some people find the opposite, where there's difficulty discerning, and then they might just tell their story. To anybody who's listening and might overtell details and then later might regret, oh, you know, why did I share my birth story with a woman at Target? Or yeah. why yeah. did I end up telling that poor pregnant lady all about my pregnancy complications or whatever? And it, it really, I think is oftentimes not to cause harm, but truly from a desire to find healing, find relief from all this distress. Is that a, so I I have a couple
0: reactions to what you said, which is totally valuable. One is that I think for a lot of people, and sometimes I include myself in this, having a label for it makes it feel recognized or validated in some way, right? So if it doesn't fit into trauma, does that mean I shouldn't be feeling it or it's not real or Mm -hmm. this is illegitimate in some way? And are those different patterns of reaction to your experience, either not talking about it or talking about it too much or not being able to articulate? Is that a sign of a dysregulated nervous system
2: or a nervous system that's, that has been shifted in the wrong way? Yeah. That's a really, all really valuable questions. Yes. For some, the labeling actually does provide benefit and reassurance of like, ah, this is what I've been feeling. And this is why I'm not crazy. I'm not weak. I'm not too sensitive. You know, all these horrible labels we give ourselves. It's instead this idea of actually what I went through was really hard. And even if I feel like I'm being dismissed, even if others are trying to tell me, but you're okay now, or what you went through was common or whatever, it can be reassuring to go, yeah, but it was traumatic to me. Yeah. And that's what's important. If it was traumatic to you, then it was traumatic, period. I, I want everyone to know that, that your trauma and your experience was very valid. It doesn't have to be that you had an emergency intervention. It doesn't have to be that you had physical damage or something horrific happened to you physically that can be seen by the naked eye of someone else. If it was traumatic to you, then it was traumatic, period. And it does connect with this question you asked about a dysregulated nervous system. That is what trauma is, is a trauma response is a nervous system response to something distress that has happened. So trauma responses can run the full gamut of hyporeactivity, which is that kind of numbing out, kind of floating away, full on disassociation, being more Intellectual about it than feeling it, just kind of disconnecting from maybe one's own body. Even not being able to look at one's own body or touch your your body, it feeling over touched, over stimulated, so kind of numbing out to being hyper reactive, which is more that um, irritability, the rage, the uh, overplaying things over and over, the hypervigilance, the feeling much more on guard. And it's people kind of describing, it's like the volume has been turned up in their life. Just everything feels more intense and reactive. So those are all nervous system responses.
0: That's a good idea, which hopefully will catch on everywhere. Because that seems critical and miscarriage is something we don't really talk about. Yeah, that's right. Uh, So often it is a solitary experience. So this Mm -hmm. seems like a, a super useful public
1: community Project. It it is. It is. I mean, anybody through, you know, over the world or or through the world can actually go into the website and chat. So they can actually go and and chat on the days that it's open. But for their phone calls, it's basically just Australia. Okay. Awesome. Well, I will link that too. It's called Pink Elephant, the Pink Elephant Support Network.
0: Okay. I'll link to that as well. Awesome. Well, congratulations on everything. Thank you. Um, All this success. And thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. Thanks again to Melissa for sharing her story, for writing and putting together books that allow other women to share their challenging experiences with this process and for us all to be in community about it. Because one thing that makes it hard is that we often feel like we're experiencing it alone. I also appreciate her information about the Pink Elephant Network, which is available to anyone online. Thanks also to therapist Beth Warren, who offers insights into the multitude of responses women and birthing people can have as they traverse all the things that can come up in the process of having a baby. I'll link to Beth's new book, Healing from Reproductive Trauma, in the show notes. And Monday, I'll include more of my interview with her, where she shares what we should gravitate toward and what to avoid in trying to comfort someone else who has experienced reproductive trauma, and more details on her new workbook. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with friends. We'll be back on Monday with more
1: from Beth Warren.